Hello and welcome to Found. This is the podcast from TechCrunch where we bring you the stories behind the startups and we talk to the entrepreneurs who build those companies to get those stories. Today, we're talking to Trevor Martin from Mammoth Bioscience, which aims to use CRISPR technology to democratize disease detection. But of course, I'm here with my co-host, Becca Skutek. Hey, Becca. How's it going? It's good. Good. How are you? Doing great. I'm just so excited about CRISPR and what it can do and how it's going to allow me to give myself superpowers is my understanding of how the technology works, right? Mm-hmm. That's the only reason they invented it, to be honest. Yes. Now, we didn't touch on that with our conversation with Trevor, but we talked about a lot of other stuff, including you know how to build a biotech company that's also a platform play. Spent a lot of time on that, but you know who can talk about this better than I can? It's Trevor. So let's get into this conversation. Hi, Trevor. How's it going? Good. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Our typical thing here is to have you, well, not you every time, obviously a different person every time, but have the founder tell us. <laughs> Unless you're interested. Yeah. You can come back. Yeah. You can be a permanent guest. Yeah. But have you explained a little bit about your company? So do you want to tell us what Mammoth is all about? Yeah. So at Mammoth, we're building the next generation of genetic medicines and potentially permanent cures for genetic disease. And we're doing that using an exciting technology called CRISPR that you may have heard of. One of my co-founders, Jennifer Doudna, won the Nobel Prize for pioneering work in CRISPR a few years ago. And we were spun out of her lab five years ago and co-founded by myself, Jennifer Doudna, and then two star researchers who also worked with Jennifer Janice Chen and Lucas Harrington to really deliver on what we see as the promise of this CRISPR technology to make a huge change in people's lives, in particular in the genetic medicine space. Amazing. So how did you get into that? Have you always been a geneticist, Trevor? <laughs> uh, I don't know about always. Um, but yeah, so I actually did my PhD over at Stanford. So it's possible to have a Stanford-Berkeley team up, first of all. Wow. Yeah. yeah despite all the football the rivalry. rivalry. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe graduate students aren't, aren't as into the rivalry. But yeah, so I actually did my PhD at Stanford before teaming up with my co-founders over from Berkeley. And my background is more actually coming from like computational biology and statistical mm. genetics. And actually, when I was an undergrad, I came in thinking that I was going to be a physics major before being introduced to this really cool program they had over at Princeton, where they basically tricked physicists and mathematicians and computer scientists into becoming biologists. Um, because I think a lot of people have the wrong idea of biology, right? You think of it as like stamp collecting. Sure. That was the first time that my eyes were really open to this idea of like, wow, like biology is actually one of those complex things that we can study and what if we were able to like apply engineering and computational biology methods to this to better understand disease for example mm -hmm. and i'm always interested in companies that are sort of based off of these innovative and sort of scientific breakthroughs like we had with crispr mm -hmm. what is it like building a company off of such innovative but also such new and sort of like novel technology in the space yeah, well, I think it's incredibly exciting to be able to play a role in you know, taking this really revolutionary technology and moving it closer and closer to patients. Sure. I think that's you know a privilege, really. And I think when it comes to CRISPR in particular, I think one of the things that's really exciting is that often it takes a very, very long time for a brand new technology, even when it has great data, to you know eventually help out patients. Yeah. And I think one of the things with CRISPR is that actually it's been moving incredibly fast. 
and this still takes a long time. Right? Right. We're still talking, you know, years and years and years. But relative to what we've seen in kind of the history of translating technologies, I think one of the striking things about CRISPR is how rapidly it really has been able to translate from the lab to the patient's bedside. And there's a lot of really exciting work going on from what I call the kind of the first generation CRISPR companies. These are companies that are like public now, mm -hmm. where they're actually patients that have been dosed with the technology and are benefiting from it. Mm. That's incredible. Right? Yeah. And that's really inspiring in terms of now as we're coming here at Mammoth and building the next generation of this technology and kind of pushing the limits of what's possible there. We can chat about that more as well in terms of moving from what we call ex vivo to what we call in vivo. So mm -hmm. moving from editing cells that are, let's say, outside the body or kind of special cases of easier editing inside the body to really being able to edit hopefully eventually any tissue or any cell in the body so we can tackle the vast majority of genetic disease rather than kind of the small pockets that are a little bit easier to tackle from the technical perspective. So I think that's something that is incredibly motivating and exciting is that this technology is really at the cutting edge, mm -hmm. but it's at the cutting edge of both science and what's possible in the clinic. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about how that went? Because you mentioned the ex vivo versus in vivo. So that, you know, I'm a little bit familiar with that, but it basically you were able to apply the technology with like a sort of like staged graduation of risk, right? Like it's like, as you prove out the technology, there's situations where it's like, let's do this here. And that way, like we can look at things and it's not going to obviously harm anybody, which is always like priority number one or whatever. Right. But as you learn, you're learning more about it and you're like applying it, as you said, like at the same time. Yeah. So right? I think a lot of the kind of first generation companies are focused on things like ex vivo because one of the grand challenges of this new technology is how do you get it into the body where it needs to go. Right. And you can think of it as kind of like driving different types of cars and there's different types of roads on this. So if you have like this uh, semi-trailer that's, you know, huge and like <laughs> it's carrying a huge payload, there's only so many places you can send it and it's actually quite difficult to route it where it needs to go. But sure. if you have like a little smart car that, you know, can easily weave in and out of San Francisco streets, it's a lot easier to get this cargo and this payload to the right areas. And I think that's one of the big innovations we've made at Mammoth and that we're driving forward is this idea of actually ultra-compact versions of these CRISPR systems. So hmm. if we think of proteins, which CRISPR systems are, they're all small, right? <laughs> you know, they're relative to us quite small. But if you zoom down to the scale of the proteins themselves, there's actually this huge variation in the size. And as it turns hmm. out, having really big proteins can mean that it's more difficult to deliver them where they need to go. And having really, really small versions that have the same efficacy and the same properties and even some advantages can be a huge boon for being able to more effectively deliver these to the right cells mm. and the right tissues. And right now, if we do things ex vivo, so that's taking cells out of the body, we have a lot of different techniques where we can kind of ignore it. We can just drive the semi-trailer, you know, wherever <laughs> we want it to go. Right, right. Just, you know, knock through any barriers. But if you want to go into the body and you're doing something like a systemic dosing even, so you're, you know, just delivering the technology like in the blood or just throughout the body, you really need a way of saying, okay, I want it to specifically, after I've done that, go to like this tissue and not mm -hmm. these other tissues. Right. And that's something, that's one of, you know, several areas that at Mammoth we're pioneering these kind of next generation CRISPR solutions to. Cool. Yeah. It sounds like kind of, this is maybe a terrible metaphor, but like if you're shooting on like a set or a lot, like you can control all the variables. And so you can kind of do whatever you want and you can take greater risks, right? Like that's like ex vivo or the truck. But if you're shooting like 
on a San Francisco street, like you can't be knocking down buildings or whatever else, right? Like you gotta be like, no, you have to, you have to pay attention to your surroundings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's yeah. Fair. I mean, So this is another thing that I, and you know, cause I've covered this a little bit as much as my limited abilities allow me to basically, but like I'll get pitches from you and from other people about like the discovery of new CRISPR proteins and you know, I'm kind of like, oh, okay. But this is what you're talking about, right? Like as you find different proteins that you can use as a delivery, that gives you more finite control. Yeah. So from the very early days of Mammoth, and frankly, for many, many years before Mammoth was even founded, from the work of my co-founders at Berkeley, they really pioneered this idea of looking at the natural diversity of life and this whole giant tree of life that we have that has just all these different CRISPR systems in it, as it turns out. Because mm. as you might remember, CRISPR systems are the adaptive immunity of many microbes, especially bacteria. And this means that they've basically undergone all this evolutionary pressure in all these different environments to like create different flavors of CRISPR. So we've built up what's become the largest database of metagenomic data to look for these. And we use machine learning and we have some robots that do high throughput screening to really find and characterize new versions of these CRISPR systems that, most importantly to what you mentioned, have properties that allow us to overcome the challenges that people are facing with Cas9, right? Because mm. it's obviously really interesting to be like, okay, new CRISPR systems. And that's really cool, especially from an academic perspective. Right. But I think what's special about Mammoth and unique is that we really push the envelope on this side so that we can solve real problems for patients, whether that's ultra-compact systems so we can deliver to more tissues, so we can create potentially permanent cures for genetic disease, or that's looking at how do we make sure we can target more uh, regions of the genome so that we can tackle more disease, or maybe that's looking at how do we make sure that we can do the different types of edits, right? Not just mm -hmm. double-strand breaks, but also base editing, gene writing, epigenetic editing, so that we can really choose the right technique for the disease rather than, you know, a lot of companies outlicensed something 10 years ago. This is common for like deep tech companies. You have yep. the one thing, so you have your hammer and everything yeah. has to look like a nail <laughs> and you're just yeah. going to, you know, pretend like every, the world only lives with nails. But at Mammoth, we really want to take this different approach of building out the largest portfolio of technologies so that we can choose the right tool for the right job rather than kind of pretending like one technology is the one that's right for everything. So I think it's really coming from that end goal of what's going to benefit patients the most and kind of what are the grand challenges that can't be solved necessarily with Cas9 and right. where can we actually create therapies that wouldn't exist if we didn't do this innovation. And I think that's one of the things that is really exciting about Mammoth is that we are pushing the envelope of both innovation and impact to the clinic. And that's a very difficult balance to keep as a company mm -hmm. grows. Because often you just end up indexing really high in one or the other, like you index really high in innovation only, and then you never build you know, a therapy or a product, or you index really high on product, and then you know another company comes along and innovates over time. Sure. So they have their pluses and minuses, but the way you build a long-term company, it's actually going to stand the test of time and actually make an impact over many years, I think, is by striking that very tricky balance between innovation and the clinic. That's what we're doing at Mama. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It really reminds me of talking to um, BioNTech and like, because mm -hmm. the mRNA, like their technology there that they were doing, they were like, we want to do it custom tailored to, to the like different uses, right? And like the different needs and it should be highly personalized depending on case, but it can flex. Like it is a, it's a system approach. It's not a 
Whereas in biotech, a lot of times you hear like, well, they've come up with a novel therapy. And it's just like you said, like, it's like, this is the therapy, it's a hammer, and they just end up getting acquired by Pfizer or something, and they're gone forever. But you want to build a lasting company that can do a whole bunch of different things. Yeah, and I think that's the interesting thing that's happening right now in biotech in general is this rise of these kind of platform technologies. So I think mRNA is one of the most famous ones now, especially because of the pandemic. But I think CRISPR is also one of the ones that maybe people have heard of before, where when you get the technology to work for one disease, what's really exciting is that you actually are even better positioned to build the second and the third and the fourth. Whereas often in biology, what's happened in the past is exactly like you said, like, you know, you build some small molecule and maybe it actually works great for a particular indication, but building your second one is kind of starting from all over the ground up all over again. (laughs) Right. Which is not the kind of flywheel that we like in, you know, Silicon Valley. (laughs) And I think that's, what's really exciting is that more recently as biology has started to become more engineering and synthetic biology and reproducible. I think these are many of the properties that are really exciting about CRISPR. It really opens a different way of thinking about building biotech companies as well. And at Mammoth, we really are taking that long view of how do we not just build one product or two products, but you know, there's 4,000 even just monogenic diseases, right? right. That could be uh, benefiting from the technology. And how do we build a long-term sustainable biotech company that can actually deliver on that promise? And I think that's one of the interesting things as well is in the biotech industry, to your point, often companies get kind of picked off by M&A early on. Mm-hmm. And there's not too many examples, frankly, of new sustainable biotechs that have arisen over, let's say, like, you know, 10 to $100 billion market cap. And I think at Mammoth, we have a rare opportunity to really build a long-term company like that because we have the combination of the technology and it actually being a kind of true platform. And then I think you also need the right team and being able to strike that balance between innovation and the clinic. And then, frankly, finally, you just need the ambition to really mm-hmm. build something like that. And that's something where Silicon Valley and the area here uh, kind of uniquely has examples of this that can be very inspiring and kind of help you separate from the traditional views of the industry as well. And something you just hinted at that I was going to ask you about is how large scale the problems this technology could solve and sort of how many potential solutions CRISPR does bring to the field of genetic diseases and other things as well. And I'm curious as you mentioned, building a long-standing company, hoping to have multiple things work out, multiple products, et cetera. How do you think about where to start and sort of where to build from there when you're looking at, I mean, if you have the solution, maybe it's nice there's a lot of problems you can apply it to, but how do you think about building out that product timeline? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And that's the classic kind of choice that all platform companies face. And you have to address it, I think, differently at each stage of the company. And I think at any stage, the, the only wrong choice is not having a point of view on it. Because <laughs> when you're early on, of course, you know, you're, let's say, far away from actually having a drug candidate of some sort. But I think one thing that often early stage companies miss is that you still need to have a strong thesis that's kind of considered and thought through of, okay, let's assume success. You know, maybe it's many years down the road, but right. let's assume our wildest dreams happen. What are we able to build and why is it differentiated from what else is out there? Because the platform is great. But if your platform is just able to replicate stuff that everyone else is doing, then you know maybe you'll still be successful. <laughs> Who knows, right? But it's a lot less compelling than if you're unlocking things that aren't possible. So to one of the things you asked earlier, right, like finding new CRISPR systems. Mammoth really pioneered you know, this whole space many, many years ago. And I think other people have sometimes misinterpreted the whole point of it as, oh, just find new Cas9s or something. <laughs> or just, you know. Right. But, and that's, you know, cool in many ways to be able to do that. But if you just have 
more proteins that are similar to what's come before, you're not actually able to build a different therapy than anyone else. And, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe there's things around IP or things that people want to try and consider. But at the end of the day, like this is all just in the service of building something for patients that wouldn't exist otherwise. And I think that's where at Mammoth, we're much more focused on how do we actually find and characterize new CRISPR technologies that actually solve real problems that are being faced with the existing technologies. So once you start thinking about it from that perspective, then even in the early days, you can say, okay, if our wildest dreams worked out, we're going to be able to go in vivo to tissues that other people wouldn't be able to go to if our technologies didn't mm-hmm. exist or you know things like that. And then you can drill down to like, okay, and there's this one specific target that's the right first indication that you go after. And I think often people overthink almost, especially at the early days, like, okay, what is the exact first target? This is not a one-way door when you're in the first year of the company, right? What's more important is that you've thought through why that indication would be interesting and what are the justifications and what's the process rather than the destination. Now, as the company matures mm. and becomes later stage, yes, these become one-way doors, right? <laughs> right. If you're in a phase three trial, yeah, you can't just change your indication, right? But if you're a seed stage yeah. platform company, you absolutely could change it, right? And you probably should. You probably haven't chosen the right first indication. But the very act of choosing some targets allows you to start to interrogate that and to figure out what the right target is. And I think often people are very resistant of like, okay, there's so many things we can do, like, you know, maybe it's this, maybe that. That's all fine. Just come up with a hypothesis and start to test it and change it. And don't be scared of it changing because it's actually way harder to change it later. So you want to start putting things down now so that you can actually iterate and land where you need to be, where you know, as a public company, for example, you have a public pipeline with, you know, all of the targets that you're going after. And I think, I think that thought process, though, is a really important one where even from the early days, you should be thinking about what is the specific disease that I'm going to be able to tackle and I help patients in a way that wouldn't be possible if my company didn't exist. Hmm. That is an incredibly important question to ask. Yeah. And if you can't answer that, you know, keep iterating it so you can. <laughs> but I think people think of it too much as like, okay, well, I'm tied to this for life. Yeah. No, I mean, if anything, it's going to put you in a better position to when you have walked through a one-way door, you're very confident that you've really stress-tested your hypothesis and um, it's something where you really are going to make a difference. So I think that's an important concept for any platform company. Yeah, that mm-hmm. reminds me of like if you, people who are, I want to learn how to code, right? And you're like, what is the advice that they're often given is to come up with the idea first and then mm-hmm. figure out how to build that thing. Then, you know, in the process of building the thing, you will acquire the skills that you have to build other things. It's But the ambiguous goal of I would like to learn to code makes it incredibly difficult, if not impossible, because it's too amorphous. You can't get your hands around it, right? Yeah, it's like too big and, big and scary. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I think often like, I think it's especially when you have like this whole universe, like, you know, even just thinking of monogenic disease, like 4,000 monogenic diseases, it's all the more important than to really focus down on like, okay, what are the things where I think I can actually make a difference? And to your mm-hmm. point about the breadth, though, it's not just monogenic disease. Those are the ones where it's immediately obvious that, okay, mm-hmm. like there's clearly a link between this single gene and this often devastating disease. Right. It's sort of the lowest hanging fruit, I guess. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. And when you're building a new technology, you also have to think about what risks you want to take, right? Right. So let's say you are going after one of these monogenic diseases. You can be really sure that if you do the edit you think you're trying to do, that it's not that the biology will not work out if you know you knock this gene down or something. Oh, it turns out that gene wasn't you know causal for the disease. Anything's possible in biology, but that's much less likely to be the case. So you're not taking on as much like biology mechanism risk 
you're just taking on the risk of, can I build the technology that's going to do that that I think I want to do? But once you've done that and you've shown your ability to do that, you can start to take a step back and think more broadly about, oh, okay, like are there novel targets even that I want to go after that either are causal for disease or you can even start to think more long-term about mitigating the risk of disease, right? Mm. So there's many monogenic diseases, but there's also many diseases where we just know, like if you do a 23andMe test, that, hey, I have a risk factor or maybe you know, some predilection towards like potentially getting a disease. Mm-hmm. And that becomes an interesting, you know, question for society as well is like, how far down this path do we want to walk in terms of, you know, curing disease, obviously a huge benefit. And as the technology develops, when do we want to make the leap to even mitigating risk of disease or, right. you know, you know, keep pushing the technology and what it can do for patients. So, you know, that's the long term of the technology. Obviously in the short term, there's so many... <laughs> diseases that we can tackle that you know are potentially curative that that's going to take a while to do to be yeah. and since you mentioned sort of how society thinks about like how far this technology can go or should go i was going to ask about that with the sense of i know there's been like growing sentiment over recent years both on the side where people think getting into the gene editing getting into some of that stuff they're like that's wrong we shouldn't be doing that and then you've got like the growing movement of people who seem to be against science and against new treatments, new medications, things we saw with the COVID vaccine, that kind of growing movement, or people are just like, don't trust new technologies in the way maybe they once Mm. did. And I'm curious how you guys think about that, especially looking to tackle these really hard problems for these patients that really need these kind of solutions, but people don't always take what they need. So I'm curious how you guys think about going against some of that growing, just anti-innovation, anti-science movement? It's an interesting question. And I think the beginning of it, you're right, it's like a society level question. I don't think any one company or even just scientists as a group are positioned to solve it on their own. I think it really is something where as these technology or as, as any technology advances, I think we do need better mechanisms as a society for really staying on top of these things and like addressing it and bringing all the stakeholders to the room. And it's not just scientists, it's not just companies, it's, you know, community leaders, religious leaders, patients, mm-hmm. you know, just across the whole spectrum. And I think often these things are reactive rather than proactive yes, yeah. just because of the mm-hmm. way, you know, we operate. I um, and I don't know, maybe that's something that will never be solved. But <laughs> ignoring that for a moment, I think what I hope, maybe I'm just a relentless optimist, is that transparency and education can really help with these things. I think often mm-hmm. when something is not understood or it's not clear like why this is a benefit or like how this was developed or like how it actually operates. I think those things can definitely be an inhibitor to technologies being adopted. So I think my hope would be that one thing that scientists and companies can do is like be very transparent, be very helpful in terms of trying to help people understand like, what is this new technology? What is CRISPR? How does it work? Like, why is it exciting? And I think, yeah, sunlight can be a great disinfectant in that Mm -hmm. regard and help people come to the conclusion themselves about how exciting it is, right? I think that's always like a really great place to get to. It's like, okay, like once someone has understood the building blocks and understands why the technology is exciting, hopefully they start suggesting like, okay, like you could do this or you do this. And wouldn't this be like really exciting and helpful? And I think once you start from like that position of like education, I think that can be very powerful in terms of not just helping people understand a new technology, but getting people to really contribute their ideas. Because I think that also 
is really important for technologies in the healthcare industry as well is how do you get more representation thinking about what the impact can be, right? Yeah. And there's going to be plenty of things that like scientists miss that maybe patient advocates would be like, wait, hold on, this is an amazing use case. Like, right. Can you look over here? Mm-hmm. And you know, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. But those are the types of conversations that I think really drive a technology forward rather than kind of put the brakes on it. So I think education can be a critical part of that. Yeah. Do you ever feel a tension between when you're running a like a for-profit business that's also working on, you know, the scientific breakthroughs, as you said, like alongside like building the business, is there a tension between like wanting to be as transparent as possible and also making sure that it's like a defensible business or do you find that's not really an issue? Oh, that's a great question. And I think there is a balance there, right? Because of course, you know, there's, especially in biotech, uh, intellectual property is something that you think about a lot. Sure, yeah. You know, making sure that you can actually build these therapies, which requires immense amounts of capital, which means you have to yeah. talk to investors, which means that you have to sign NDAs, have NDAs, have yeah. a defensible strategy of why that why they should invest hundreds of millions of dollars into you know, helping to build these things. So yeah, no, I mean, I think that's definitely something you have to think about, but I think there doesn't necessarily have to be a tension between the education and the spreading of excitement around like why the technology is impactful without necessarily, you know, having to step on the toes of like, okay, do we file this patent or things like that? I think it's definitely something where I could see how it could seem like a bit of a contradiction, but I think in practice, you know, often you can figure these things out and you don't have to make them in opposition truly. Right. Radical open source is like, because it ends up being polarized, right? It's like, oh, well, either you do everything. Yeah, I think there's a middle a middle yeah. ground there. And I think <laughs> it's interesting because there's some lessons you can take from software and some that you can't. And it's hard a priori to know necessarily which ones and vice versa. Yeah, I think also because when you're dealing with atoms versus, you know, electrons, <laughs> there's also just different capital scale requirements and, mm-hmm. you know, different timelines and things like that. And I think what's exciting is that Biology in particular has started to become more engineerable and kind of like shifting more towards the software end of the spectrum. Yeah. But it's not exactly at the same point, right? So I think over time, yeah, hopefully one day we have the tricorder and 3D (laughs) printer from Star Trek and like it truly just converges completely. But until that moment, yeah, there are going to be differences in how you build companies in each space and how you approach the different areas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Since you mentioned fundraising and getting through these problems is so capital intensive, what has it been like fundraising for you guys? I know you have had some success there, of course, but what kind of feedback do you get? Is it easy? Do you need that education element when you're talking to potential investors or are you mainly raising from people who are sort of like tapped into the space, pretty familiar with the technology or sort of what you could build off of it? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Yeah, one of the things about like biotech companies in general is often, yeah, you're having to raise the money to build the product before you have revenue, whereas often in software, you're kind of, you can even bootstrap, right? Sure. You, and the proof points are different, right? It's things around the technology, around the IP, around the team versus, you know, necessarily just like revenue metrics. That being said, of course, you can generate revenue as a biotech company. There's, you know, partnerships, there's abilities to sell into different markets, there's, you know, research tools versus therapies versus diagnostics all have different timelines and kind of different hurdles. So I think in general, one of the things that's interesting about raising money on the biotech or like more deep tech side of the equation is that especially early on, it's a lot of bet on the technology and the team mm-hmm. and the IP as well. Uh, you don't have the same feedback loop necessarily. It's <laughs> like, okay, like even in a year, like, uh, you know, exactly where this is headed. Yeah, right. yeah. So I think there you, in my opinion, have to foster much more 
kind of tight and long-term relationships with investors. I think that's mm. something that's super important to us is like, this is a 10 year plus journey, right? Right. We're building one of the next great biotech companies and that takes a lot of capital and a lot of time. And, you know, building a hundred billion dollar biotech is going to be different from building a hundred billion dollar software company. It's going to be, I think, super rewarding and we're going to feel a ton of patience. But Software is so rewarding, I'm yeah, sure. No, genuinely, of course, yeah. like it can be, but um, it's just a different journey to actually move atoms around in a way that can help potentially cure patients. So yeah. I think there, one of the key things is even from the early days of like the seed and series A rounds, really finding investors that resonate with that long-term view and that understand like this is building a deep tech biotech company. Mm -hmm. And that is going to be something that does require a lot of capital and does require that kind of focus on the long term. And I think that we're very, very fortunate Mammoth to have a really great base of investors that from the early days have understood that. And we've also been able to build a unique investor base of both kind of generalist and biotech healthcare only investors. I think that creates a really great environment for building a long-term company because you have these different perspectives that are being brought to the table and can kind of challenge some of the usual assumptions. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I think the thing in there that like sounds the most different to me, at least based on like conversations with on the software side founders, is that Series A conversation is usually like, okay, now give us all of your metrics and your revenue and we'll put it in the spreadsheet. Yeah, 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 exactly. And then we'll like make our projections. But you can, you're not necessarily at that point, right? You're still in the point of you're like, think ahead, think ahead. Like we're going to do it. Like it's going to look like this, but it's going to look like this quite a bit further out. I mean, as you said, you uniquely have revenue opportunities early versus perhaps other biotech companies, yeah. but it's not quite like that, right? Yeah, it's not always the case. And definitely at Mammoth, we've been very fortunate that we can also find partners that share the long-term vision, sure. right? So we yeah. have public partnerships with uh, Vertex and Bayer, for example. And those are really great in terms of helping us build our capabilities and, you know, bringing in complementary technologies in addition to, of course, you know, cash that helps to build the company itself. And I think that that's something where for any platform company, that's an important balance to strike as mm -hmm. well. And thing to consider philosophically is, you know, what do you want to do yourself and what do you want to do with partners, right? Mm -hmm. What yeah. are the areas where you can help patients more effectively and faster and have a greater benefit by working collaboratively? And what are the areas where you do want to go it alone? If any, right? Yeah. So those are important considerations for any platform company that you have to think about early on as well. Yeah. Another question related to that is, do you ever feel pressure from the gravity of some of those partners? Do you ever feel like perhaps you will get sucked in and then become part of them? Do you feel acquisitive urges from some of these people <laughs> and have to like maintain your independence or what? Well, I think the most important thing is that you want partners that understand what you're doing and mm. you're aligned on what you want to build together. And that's like, any relationship, whether it's an investor or personal <laughs> life or you know whatever it is, mm. I think that's a really key part of choosing a partner is that you want to make sure you are aligned on whatever that is. Maybe it is right. like a venture combination. Maybe it's that, hey, we're going to build these amazing products together um, and we're going to help build these capabilities. And I think there it's just really important to be clear and upfront and just to have these conversations. About, okay, where do we really want this to head? And like, what are the things that we're bringing to the collaboration to make sure it's successful? So I think there's no like one size fits all. Mm. I think you just don't want to be in a situation where, yeah, like you're surprised. Like, you're like oh, wait, yeah, I, I didn't think that's what you wanted. Um, so <laughs> This is li literally a relationship advice, actually. We could yeah, yeah. actually so, replace that entirely, yeah. And now exactly. it's like a couples counseling podcast. But it's worse, yeah, yeah, I think it's more general advice, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. And something I wanted to ask you about is thinking about the team 
that you have built so far and sort of will expand on as you guys grow. But what is it like working on a company that's based off of a technology when you have like one of the original members who helped invent that technology well, three on of the, the team? Three of the inventors, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm just like, we've had someone on the show recently who built a company off of research from a professor at their university who ended up joining the um, board. And that company is great, but I mean, like, it's not exactly CRISPR, right, which sure. is like, we're all hearing about CRISPR kind of across the board because it is such a huge breakthrough. And it was when it came out. Yeah. So what is it? Yeah. What is it like working with like trying to take on those ideas and move them forward when you are working with some of the original people who sort of got to this point to begin with? Yeah. Well, it's an incredible responsibility to make sure we deliver on the promise of the technology. I think that's number one, right? Mm-hmm. Is that you want to make sure that we are a good shepherd of bringing the technology to patients in the most effective way. I think that's the first thing. I think more generally, one thing that's like never steered me wrong in my career is wanting to work with the smartest people I possibly can and <laughs> yeah, trying to never be the smartest person in the room. So I think that was one of the things that made Mammoth really obvious is you know the team that we've assembled is really incredible in many different ways. We have the inventors of the technology. We have also veterans from the biotech industry who have joined who have done amazing things, uh, including helping build companies from $500 million market cap to $50 billion market cap, which Mm -hmm. is incredibly rare. And all share this vision of building a long-term biotech company that really makes a difference and really has an impact on patients' lives. So I think that is like almost like a non-negotiable in terms of (laughs) like when you're starting a company, I think that's exactly what you should be looking for is this incredible excitement around the technology and also incredible excitement around the team in particular. Because building anything is hard. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe I'm wrong. But like whether you're dreaming small or dreaming big, I think it's all hard. So you might as well dream big and work with the most exciting technology and people that you can possibly can. Yeah. Yeah, I think building TechCrunch is actually pretty easy, as Becca will attest. But. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, maybe podcaster easy. I yeah. built it, even though I only joined a year ago. I, I built the whole thing fifteen years yeah. ago. It was really easy, just an afternoon, you know. Yeah, sounds so, like it. We just have to type, and then we put it on the internet. So they're quite simple. I think there's some steps in between, but I'm not familiar with those. Somebody else does those. We've actually <laughs> been using Chat GPT yeah. since 2008. I'm just talking about yeah. a bunch of AI avatars. <laughs> Oh yeah, we're not real. We never have been. Oh man, I honestly, I'm kind of looking forward to that day because <laughs> then I'll be on a beach somewhere, hopefully. But that's the Star Trek version of the story. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, ChatGPT is not going to pay you, Daryl. Well, that's the I know issue. UBI. This is why I'm a big advocate for UBI, and then it well, should be very high, very high UBI. That's what I'm. Well, I'll just about. be solving captions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Trevor, I I want to ask about because you clearly are like you're so informed and passionate about the science and the engineering, how was it for you to get to grips with the business side? Was that a process that came naturally to you? or And how did you like go out and find those skills? Yeah, it's a good question. I think actually in many ways, a PhD can be helpful training for a startup. Sure. In one specific way, which is, I think a lot of a PhD is basically not knowing the right answer and <laughs> they're not having any source of truth really for what the right answer is and having to kind of wander the wilderness to <laughs> figure it out. And I think what that also does is builds like a lot of resilience. Mm-hmm. There's many things that PhD doesn't do, uh, especially you know team management, like recruiting. Yeah, many many things that probably should be improved about the <laughs> average PhD. But I think one thing that actually does transfer quite well is that kind of not knowing the right answer and being comfortable with that and understanding how to find right answers. And I mm-hmm. think one thing 
I really was looking for personally when starting the company is personal growth and like just kind of being challenged and learning new things. So be careful what you wish for. Because <laughs> yeah, startups are that, that. <laughs> in spades. Um, like not just, you know, month to month, but week to week, day to day. And I think you just have to be comfortable with that learning and that growth trajectory. I think, yeah, you can try and read as many books as you want. And, you know, of course, listen to as many podcasts about like how to navigate the business world. And you should, this can be very helpful. But at the end of the day... We agree, obviously. This yeah. one, this one specifically. <laughs> this is all you have to listen to. Yeah, especially this one. But I think in general, you're going to be encountering things that you just don't expect. And that's where you have to have that resilience and that ability to learn that I think is like the most important attribute because it's not rocket science right like you're not solving massive differential equations necessarily you're dealing with some- you're pretty close though compared to <laughs> yeah, other startups yeah. so, like if we're being yeah. honest <laughs> but i think often people are more complicated than these technical areas so i think that's where you have to maybe most importantly just want to learn these things I and mean, just have that ambition and be really open to being wrong and figuring out the right answers Mm-hmm. Well, Trevor, I think we're actually just about out of time, but I think that's a good place to end anyway. Uh, some parting advice for our listeners. Yeah. yeah, this was fantastic. It was great hearing from you and hearing all about building this company on the cutting edge. It's uh, rare that we get to talk to people who are actually working on the cutting edge of like <laughs> brand new novel technologies, as much as people claim they are. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, don't tell the other founders that. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, no, it's definitely a privilege. And that's what makes it exciting. So, yeah, while I get out of bed in the morning. Is the ability to make a difference. All right, that was our conversation with Trevor. Trevor is clearly a scientist. That's my clearest impression of talking to him, Becca. What did you think? Yeah. No, and it's also just so interesting talking to people who are building off of such novel technology in this space. Because sure, we could have on like 50 people building generative AI right now, but like CRISPR was such a huge breakthrough that it's so, yeah, just fascinating to hear about what it's like building off of just such novel tech that's so new. Yeah. I mean, it's super interesting, CRISPR in particular, because it was, and we talked about it with Trevor, just like commercialized so quickly because it went from lab to a product, like a company, and then also like stuff with revenue so fast and you don't normally see that. But it's also obvious that this was like, there's few technologies, few scientific developments, I should say, that when they come out, everyone is kind of like, wow, the impact of this is going to be so far-ranging and so massive and CRISPR was one of those and it sounds like everybody involved kind of realized it because a lot of the people who are doing the fundamental research ended up going into business with Trevor right including Mm -hmm. Jennifer Doudna who's you know one of the pioneers of the technology yeah CRISPR has been something I've always been really interested and excited about because I know one of the use cases there is just because like you said it's become like a commercialized thing so quickly it just gives access to maybe smaller research groups or groups trying to research maybe like less common ailments or conditions that don't get a lot of funding. Like it's nice to kind of have this huge technology now that they can start experimenting with in a way that, you know, the same people get to when they have like a lot of funding and larger research groups for more prevalent diseases and conditions. Yeah, I think the flip side of that, which we didn't talk that much about, but which Trevor hinted at a little bit is like there's been some contentious Stuff around this technology, too, including people claiming kind of like simultaneous discovery or whatever and patent disputes as well. And 
some of what they do can be read as land grabs over protein discoveries. And Trevor got into it a little bit, right? Like they're looking for different proteins. And he kind of threw some subtle shade at competitors saying they're going out there and sort of discovering new proteins like Cas9 that do similar things just for the sake of discovering them. Whereas they're doing it, and this would be what I imagine he would say was their competitive advantage, like from a end result thing backwards. They're like, what is the thing we want to do? And then they're looking through the many, 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 many different proteins, CRISPR proteins, to find one that can suit that purpose, right? But it is this sort of like intellectual property arms race, which is a little bit antithetical to the idea of like, Mm -hmm. let's develop this new technology and make it as broadly available as possible. Yeah, no, you're definitely right. But I mean, it would be such a naive view to be like, oh, this great technology came out, we're all going to hold hands and use it together. Yeah. So it's like surprising in one way, but also not surprising just due to the nature of everyone is competitive about everything. But I do always love hearing a little bit about the drama in some of these industries you like don't hear about often. Yeah, like for sure. The protein race drama is like very interesting. It is very interesting. And it is, you're right, it is naive. I'm thinking now about like Frederick Banting and the discovery of insulin. And then like he wanted that to be free for everybody. And, you know, flash forward to now and it's like in the States, you have to, here too, like in Canada, it's one of the few things that is like not covered oddly by our health really? insurance plan. Like, yes, like you oddly have to pay for insulin, which if you are a diabetic, you require to live. That's so surprising. It's very, you know, bizarre. And I don't know the actual history you of how that happened. just shattered my view of Canada. Hey, listen, we still got other stuff that's great. This is true. But in terms of healthcare and everything else, but that one thing is a weird, big, glaring omission. Hmm. Yeah, but it happens, right? And it's we did talk about the tension between business and scientific development, you know, doing well and how especially that that comes into play when you're starting so early with the technology at the gate. But it seems like, you know, again, he is still very much a scientist. And I think he does genuinely have that as a concern. Like he genuinely wants the technology to do as much good as it can do. Right. Mm -hmm. And he thinks this is the mechanism for doing so in the system that exists currently, which is a fair assessment. Mm -hmm. And I also thought, and I wish we had talked about this with him a little longer, just about some of the societal part of this and like how society views, I mean, like, especially post COVID. I mean, I've got people I went to high school with who are now like, I would never take Tylenol again. Right. So like you talk about like gene editing and like stuff that's kind of like really deep in there. I'm like, I just, it's one of those things where I feel one thing will go slightly wrong and it'll become like a Republican talking point for like two decades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That will be such a shame. Like all of that stuff that ends up going down that path is, but it is such like you hear gene editing and I feel like people are going to be kind of like, oh, like, I don't know about that. 100%. No, for sure. And there's lots of valid concerns there. And we touched on a bit of them with the ex vivo versus in vivo conversation about like, because if you do one, you're sort of, it's fine, right? Like your impact is limited to the cells you've removed from the body and whatever. And he, he talked about like, we're fairly certain when we like target a gene or whatever, like we're going to go change that. It's going to have this effect on a mono, I forget what the term is, but like a disease that presents because of the expression of one gene, right? They're like, we are pretty sure if we do a change this, it's going to change this for the better. But it's always pretty sure until you actually do the thing. You never know right. what the knock-on effects are. And it's a, our systems are messy and you don't know what's going to happen when you change one piece with the others, right? Necessarily. So those concerns are valid. 
understandably, you know, most people working in this area are going to downplay those risks. And also understandably, people on the other side are going to overplay those risks, right? Who are like, right. don't want this to go forward. But the truth is somewhere in the middle. So it's it's an interesting thing. And it I think it's absolutely going to be a sticking point and a big point of debate, especially as more of this in vivo stuff starts coming to market, which it's just now beginning to. Mm-hmm. You're going to see it become part of the public discourse around politics and this technology. Right. Which is such a shame because it is such an innovative technology and there are so many use cases that could transform people's lives. Yeah. If we put, if they, we, I'm not doing research on CRISPR. Uh, I am just as a hobbyist. But (laughs) someone who works at the technology will be able to kind of really help transform people's lives down the line. So hopefully... Maybe being optimistic, maybe this tech would be so transformational it'll like cross some of those potential barriers. Yeah. That is always something to think about. I think so. I think it it'll start to convince people, depending you know, if it has the effects that a lot of people imagine it will, then I think it will start to change people's minds and make them think differently about the application of stuff like this. But we'll find out in the future and I'm sure we'll hear more from Mammoth down the road. They're a company with so much potential. We're we're bound to hear more from them. Mm-hmm. Found is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington, and TechCrunch Plus reporter Becca Skutak. We're produced by Maggie Stamitz with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. 